Hi guys, this is Steve Hansen, emerging Hampton Roads, Norfolk, Virginia, and this is Beyond the Box. Hi, I'm Rayburn Johnson. And I'm Steve Sensenick. And this is Beyond the Box. Here's your invitation to explore life outside the box of institutional religion. This is a place where there are no walls to restrict our search for truth as we embrace the ambiguity of defining our life in Christ. So unbuckle your seatbelt, recline your chair, throw caution to the wind, and get ready for the ride that is Beyond the Box. Welcome back to Beyond the Box, everyone. It is so good to be back with you today. I am really excited to start a brand new series with you guys. For the next few weeks, we're going to be doing a series of what I'm going to call Loose at the Goose interviews. (laughs) Loose at the Goose. And you're going, what the heck is that all about? Well, back in June, I, I had the privilege of attending the Wild Goose Festival in Shakori Hills, North Carolina, and just had an incredible time talking to a lot of really cool people outside of the box thinkers, had so many theological conversations that were just, had depth and, and oh, it was just really great. Thoroughly enjoyed myself. And while I was there, I had the privilege of having a beyond the box booth along with Michael Harden and Lori Harden in their preaching peace booth. And they also hosted Kevin Miller and his Hellbound the Movie booth. So we had kind of a three-in-one booth, Hellbound the Movie, Preaching Peace, and Beyond the Box, which really gave us the opportunity to have some awesome conversations um, with each of us, but also with a lot of other people. Really great stuff. And while I was there, I recalled um, a Facebook question, I guess from a couple of months ago, where someone asked about Ananias and Sapphira. And they were basically asking, what the heck is going on in Acts chapter 5 with the story of Ananias and Sapphira? And they specifically requested that Brad Jerzak and uh, Michael Harden weigh in on what what they thought about what's going on in in that particular situation. And so while I was there, the thought just kind of hit me, gosh, wouldn't it be really cool to have a roundtable discussion about Ananias and Sapphira? So not only did we get Michael Harden and Brad Jerzak, but we also were able to sit down with Lori Harden, Kevin Miller from Hellbound, and also Steve Barry, who is a Girardian himself and has done a series of extended interviews with Rene Girard that you can watch. You can catch a little bit of that on YouTube. Uh, Stephen E. Barry, I think, is the username. Anyway, we had an incredible conversation about Ananias and Sapphira. And when we sat down to do kind of a roundtable discussion, I don't think any of us were prepared for what happened. You'll be able to tell that kind of in the middle of this conversation, we all had an aha moment that just changed the whole way that we perceived the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So I hope this is going to be as incredible and as powerful for you as it was for us, because we all went away just going, wow, that was amazing. So I hope you feel the same way. I want to apologize up front for a little bit of um, sound issues. We were, you'll notice that we were outside at the Wild Goose Festival. And so you're going to hear 
a thunderstorm come through. You're going to hear driving rain come through. And last but definitely not least, and definitely not the least distracting, you're going to hear uh, Jennifer Knapp at the main stage doing a big sound check right in the middle of our conversation. She was preparing for a concert that she was doing that night, and our booth happened to be right beside the stage. So right in the middle of our conversation, you're going to hear all sorts of uh, music and singing, and you know, at least it's really good music. So <laughs> I hope you'll enjoy that. So, uh, you know, I'm going to even give Jennifer Knapp a plug here. If you like what you hear in the background, go check out Jennifer Knapp's music. I think you'll really enjoy it. So anyway, with all of those clarifications and uh, all of those caveats, I'm going to get out of the way and drop you right in the middle of the Wild Goose Festival. This is Loose at the Goose, a roundtable Bible study on Acts 5. Well, I am pleased to be joined in the Preaching Peace Hellbound Beyond the Box Everything booth <laughs> by Kevin Miller, Brad Jerzak, Lori Harden, Michael Harden, and Steve Barry. And it's not often we get to do this, but we've actually had a question on the Facebook page this week about Ananias and Sapphira. And there's been some debate going back and forth on the Facebook page about what the heck happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Or why did God kill Ananias and Sapphira if God is that nonviolent God that you guys believe in? And we were specifically asked to get Michael Harden and Brad Jerzak to weigh in on the conversation. We've got a whole roundtable going on here, so I'm going to get away from the microphone and I want to hear some response, some uh, some insight into what you guys think was happening in that passage about Ananias and Sapphira. I just have to say that there's thunder in the background. <laughs> <laughs> so when, when people hear this, that is thunder in the background, folks. Yeah. So it might be indicative that we uh, you don't want to listen to us and maybe burn this recording upon upon first hearing, <laughs> or, right? Or you might be hellbound. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So would you like to hear from uh, Acts? Absolutely. Okay. So Acts of the Apostle, chapter four, verses thirty-two, following. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. And they laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had needed. And Joses, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's the context. Okay, so this is Brad, and I want to begin by problematizing this. And problematize to me means um, if I were to take what's often called the plain reading of the text, <laughs> which, uh, which I've inherited in, in, in sort of a literalistic read that's also not very careful quite often, Here's what I'm hearing, and here's why it's a problem. Uh, traditionally, what we've heard is you've got this thing going on where people are holding all things in common, 
and then we have a case where one of the couples is hoarding and lying about it. But because we're in this uh, supernatural beginnings of the New Testament church, uh, somehow they're brought in and, and uh, they're interrogated about this. And when, they, when they're found out, uh, Peter announces that they're going to be one at a time killed. And so, and here, this is an interpretive move we make, and so God kills them. If I take that interpretation at face value, but, and remember it's an interpretation, but if I take that interpretation at face value, here's my problem. If God is the kind of God of wrath who uh, notices somebody lying about their offering and kills them, why on earth wouldn't he be the kind of God of wrath who could have taken care of Hitler before he killed six million Jews? In other words, if he's the kind of God of wrath who, who strikes down um, you know, a lying Christian, then he's pretty lame at being a God of wrath who can handle injustice and torture and torment. And why isn't he running around preventing my friends from being raped or abducted or... Uh, can I play the devil's advocate on yes, that? Yes, please. Uh, what, if, what if a person came back and said, well, because they're a Christian and they're held to a higher standard, because they're indwelt by the Holy Spirit and they're denying um, that, that they're lying to the Holy Spirit, like Peter goes on to say. What would you say? Yeah, I would say that I've seen Christians do much, much worse than Ananias and Sapphira for much, much longer, including the abuse of children by clergy, for example. If God is the kind of God who does this wrath on Ananias and Sapphira for lying about an offering, then... He is, he is failing the church by not taking out, you know, pastors and priests and children's workers who, who, who've taken advantage and, and abused children on a long-term basis in, in radical ways that are just like virtually unrepeatable on the radio. And so I, I'm not saying that at this point that God's not a God of wrath. I'm just, I'm not even saying I don't want him to be. I'm saying I want him to be at some level. And he's not very good at it. Yeah. He's very inconsistent about it. So I want to throw this over then to, to the other four here. I'd like to just me. read now yep. chapter 5. So this, the context is a lot of sharing going on, yep. right? So now in chapter 5 of Acts, But a certain man, man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later, when his wife came in, not knowing what happened, and Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for, your, for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? 
Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Thus endeth the reading of the passage. Thanks be to God. So, uh, maybe uh, the Hardens can weigh in. We'll have Kevin Miller also share. We, we, uh, we've got a very odd text here. Yes. And it, it, for those who believe in, in, in uh, the nonviolence of God, it, it's a problem. Well, first, first in the text. This is Michael. Yeah, this is Michael. Sorry. In the text, it nowhere says that God caused the death. It simply says, with regard to Ananias, um, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. It does not say God struck him dead. Same thing with Sapphira. Again, no indication in the text that it is God who is doing the striking down. They are both bearing the burdens of the consequences of their life. So, in other words, they're reaping what they've sowed, but it has nothing to do with God doing the reaping. It has to do with what they have done. Do you want to toss in on that? Well, I just had an idea as I was hearing this, and especially the context where you had this group of Christians that are having this wonderful experience together and it says and nobody was in need nobody needed anything because they shared whatever they had and it was enough it's kind of harking back to the loaves and the fishes you know we gathered up a few things and everybody had plenty and so this idea that Ananias and Sapphira I'm, I got a sense listening to this just now that they want to be a part of this of this joyous thing happening but I, I don't know what reason they decided that they still needed to have some control over their possessions, like a fallback or something. I, don't, I'm, I, I can't say what their motivation In was. In case this church thing but, didn't work. Yeah, right. Yeah. So we won't give everything. We'll give. <laughs> they wanted to be considered a full part that had given everything, like the rest that they saw, enjoying this life of the Spirit and this life of abundance. But they. But for whatever reason, didn't have that, didn't have the faith to do that, and so then they lied about what they did, and um, that's all I'll say about that for now. Kev, what do you? I, I would have more questions than answers. I mean, my my first when when you encounter a text like that, that seems like a, such an anomaly, I would just wonder about the textual history. I don't, I don't know much about it to go. Is this a later insertion? Is this sort of a? Um, Remythologizing is, but it, it it would seem the strange thing to do to insert this one story, and then not do it periodically throughout the text. Mm -hmm. So I, it, it strikes me as an anomaly and something I would just want to know more about the textual history. And I don't, I can't really say much about it right now. Yeah. yeah. I like what what Lori has to say. I think that she's right on. I, I think that that the whole thing um, pivots around um, a view of God as a God of abundance who allows everyone to participate and in effect enjoy 
the bounty that God has provided, but that things go awry when people decide, for whatever reason, that they are entitled to something more. Mm. That they somehow um, are, are special case. And that they will do what they need to do in order to maintain their sense of what is uh, rightfully theirs. See, they didn't have a spirit of giving it all over in the first place. They wanted to be part of something good, but they didn't give everything over. Well, isn't this the case with most Christians anyway? I mean, what we call Christians in America or in the Western world, where we, we will give only enough over to God to secure our place in the community. We will not give over what will not be a benefit personally to us. And that is problematic, I think. And the, the problem, I, I think, I mean, I definitely grasp that analogy, but the, the thing about the text is, I guess a question I would have is, is this a supernatural occurrence? Did something, and it, did something, uh, clearly, if we just read at face value, something out of the ordinary happened. So nobody just, like, lies about you know, the amount of money they got and then falls down dead when they're confronted with the truth. Well, like, like when well, you were talking I, but, about the, the reaping and the sowing, yeah. that, that's my question is, what does that mean? Like, you know, the, the reaping and the sowing, if, you, if you're reaping death, how did that occur? You know, how, how did they die? Was it, like you said, supernatural agency? Or was it, is there something encoded into us that... And why them and not us? Why them right, and right. not America? Right? Why right. we should have very empty churches by this standard. <laughs> and so what, yeah. what I'm told is, well, it's because the presence of God was so strong there. Now we're back to God killing them with his presence. Right. Well, and that's what I'm saying. It seems like a supernatural occurrence, so it's just logical to attribute that to God. Or it would seem right. like a logical move. You know? but, 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 but Michael has said... There's no sacred so. violence in the text. In other words, it's God is not the subject of the verb to kill. Right. Or to cause to die. There yeah. is the element, though, after that, they had the fear of the Lord. Oh, there's no So they're inferring they're, it, perhaps? Peter, they're, they're exactly inferring it, but remember, this is the Jerusalem church headed up by Peter and James who still have a second temple Jewish eschatology. Mm. They have, the implications of the resurrection have not filtered in yet. In addition to that, in Acts 5, you have... In Acts 4, you have this wonderful piece. Everybody's happy, everything's harmonious, it's all sweet and nice and lovey-dovey. In Acts 5, you've got Ananias and Sapphira. In Acts 6, you've got the Hebrews and the Hellenists. In Acts 7, you've got the problem of Stephen and the critique of the uh, religious institutions in his death. In Acts 8, you've got Simon the Magician trying to buy off this power, to buy this power from the apostles. In Acts 9, you've got the apostle, or the, the, who will, the one that will be the apostle Paul, Saul. So you, and, and you've got immediately following this little idyllic utopian piece, you've got problem after problem after problem after problem. In none of the stories, in none of them, is God involved as an actor of wrath. See, what, what you're saying, I think this is one of, the, one of the things that we miss, especially in evangelicalism, is we almost look at the book of Acts as if disciples came fully formed in the way of Jesus as soon as the resurrection happened. That it's almost like the Acts, we take it to be prescriptive instead of descriptive. Had that happened, Paul would have never had issues with Peter and James hmm. in Antioch that he writes about in Galatians. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting what you described, that structure. It's very similar to the beginning of the primeval history of Genesis. Oh, it is. It begins with that idealic with the picture of creation, and then, and then everything goes to, to rot. Yeah, wow. Right. Right. So, that's right. 
So I also, a, a good principle is when you see something that, uh, uh, death and, and God is close by in a way that you might infer that it's God, it's a good idea to look around the text to see who else is in there. So for example, in the 10th plague uh, in Egypt, um, there, we've certainly taught that it's the, it's the wrath of God that kills the firstborn children, and yet when we read about, about them smearing blood on the, on the doorpost, it says that God was protecting them from the destroyer. And then you just have to do a little Bible study on the destroyer. So who's the destroyer in the Bible? And all the, So now I come back to this text. I go, hmm, is anyone else around with a reputation for destroy, stealing, killing, and destroying? And you want to just read it? Uh, Peter's question there about the Satan. Yeah, Peter yeah. says to um, Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? So there's two pieces here that the satanic the principle that what I call the Satan has achieved. One is deception. That is, why has, has this happened? And the second is withholding. Now, what's, what Kevin brought up about the... the uh, potential parallel here to the book of Genesis in terms of structure. Eden followed by major problems. I wonder here if in fact that might not be uh, an extremely valuable insight and that what we are, what we have here in the book of Acts is the fall of the church. Oh, Whoa. wow. Oh, Dude. Selah. Wow. Paul becomes the new Abraham. Yeah, Paul becomes a new Abraham. Yes. Wow. Yes. Come on. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh. So I'm thinking that this is, this, is, wow. this is important. So now the Satan has the same function in Acts 5 that the Satan had, or that the serpent has in Genesis 3, which is to lie. But in this case, when in this Genesis 3 text, Satan's deception is that God is the withholder. That's the deception of yeah, the Satan. Yeah, yeah. Here... The peep, the Ananias believes wow. that God is a withholder. Therefore, he's going to hold part back and he's going to give part. There you go. So I. So they imitate God. They Im, they imitate what they think is God. So but so. Uh, but that's not the case. Which is just what Adam and Eve did. That's right? exactly yeah. right. Wow. Well, they they grasp for what God had. And yeah. we think the role reversal, by the way. This time it's the man first. It's the man first. That's exactly huh. that's another good piece. Yeah. Wow. You know, I, I think we're really onto something yeah. here in terms really of asking about this structure. Wow. Okay, so, let me be crass yeah. again. What killed him? <laughs> well, it doesn't look at it. No, no, no. It just simply take... says he fell down and died. And fell. He, fell down and died. And in the, in the <laughs> wife, there's a hole. There's the bottle. Peter. And they covered him with a mat. And the same thing in dress She was going to die. Because they covered that with a mat again. Jack that's it. That's it. <laughs> You're gonna die. <laughs> but an anthropological reading of this yeah. um, is just based upon how those people have have reaped the consequences of of their falsehood. Just a pure anthropological reading. Take God out of the equation yeah, yeah, right. and just take a look at what they did yeah. and the consequences of what they did. How that screws everything up. And it doesn't set a precedent then for every time someone eat, eats the wrong fruit, they're going to get yeah, killed. Yeah. Right. So it, it's a it's a primordial fall of the church then too. It, 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 so we don't have. It's not like every time you lie about the offering, we need to have a death again in the church. That, yeah. That's right. It, it, they're making a, a they're, they're making a point here. But um, if we continue to withhold from God, we will reap that. Yeah. We, wow. In other words, you get the God you believe in. Wow. Right. 
Then, the, but Jesus taught that. With the measure you measure, you will be measured. That's right. Wow. You get the God you believe in. And I think this also has allusions to you can't serve God and money. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And when we just look at the three things that are most endemic to the Christian church, our desire for safety, security, and comfort, not just the Christian church, but humanity, yeah. how is it in this modern day that we allow God to provide us our safety, our security, and our comfort. We don't. We get our comfort from the works of our own hands. Our security is from the works of our own hands. Our, our safety is from the works of our own hands. We don't need God. And this is just this is just a, 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 a story that talks about that move from okay, well, God and money are diametrically opposed. Or, or this grasping and this desire after money, or this desire for us to to do it ourselves, because you know, Jesus don't know said what God's you can't do. serve God money. Exactly. Right. Well, and, and, right. and, and to give, uh, sorry, sorry, Brad, but, but from a, a Gerardian perspective, that's yeah. because money is Im embedded in the um, economy of exchange. The do days I give in order to receive, whereas the the God of the gospel. Is not. Yeah. Hmm. You know, it, it strikes me too. I, I've, I've been kind of mad at Peter about this. It feels like he's tricking them, and, and it certainly, at least after Ananias had, had died, he should have given Sapphira a chance. But if we're going to do this parallel thing with with uh, Genesis, it's, it's, it would be very interesting then to, to look at how Jesus, uh, how God comes and asks mm. Adam and Eve the question, what mm. happened here? Well, he doesn't say on? that. He doesn't say what happened here. He says, where are you? Are you? Are but it's an inquiry, right? It's yeah, not yeah but it's a pastoral inquiry. It's yeah. not a legal inquiry. Right. And then even with and then with Cain, right? With Where's Cain? your brother? Where's your brother? Yes. And now I'm, I'm wondering if there's a parallel then in, in if, if Peter is somehow being spirit-led in, in how he's asking or, well, or what he says, what he says to he just asked her the question, at least according to the text of Luke here. Boy, it's sure hard to read this computer screen. Um, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. That's the question. In other words, the, your husband says you sold the land for um, $10,000. Is that the amount you sold it for? In other words, she has a chance now to say... Well, really, we sold it for five thousand, and we really don't want to um, to be, you know, so bothered about that. Well, friends, um, I don't know if you heard the thunder in the background, but it started raining on us pretty good, and Brad had to go throw that fly on the tent so he didn't wake up in a soggy mess tonight. <laughs> so we are now continuing the conversation on Ananias. Well, we got and some beat going on here. Yeah, we uh, want you to get into this Bible come study. On, come on. Come on. <laughs> get into this Bible study. Come on now. Come on. Get into this Bible study. So uh, hopefully you can hear us behind the music. Um, you know, if nothing else, it'll be entertaining. So. <laughs> well... One of the things I said during break, well, um, Brad and Kevin had to go make sure that they uh, didn't have soggy sleeping bags, was that what we're doing here is practicing the Anabaptist hermeneutical principle of that Bible study is only done in community. We're working texts together. But notice that we're not sitting around speculating. 
we're always going back. What's the text say? What's the text say? Where's right. the text going? What's what's the larger context? What's the big picture? And that's I think what has allowed some of these emerging insights to that are just I think brilliant. Yeah, that's Paul right. as the new Abraham is just like boing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You said wow. emerging. Yeah, I said uh -oh. emerging. Uh -oh. Oh no. Well, I think this is part of. I think this is part of the whole thing of. Um, uh, when, when you begin to do this, you're leaving room for the Spirit of God. Yeah. You know, because what we tend to do many times is we take the Spirit out of the equation and we simply, we come up with our formulated systematic theologies so that we can, you know, dot all our I's, cross all our T's, all that kind of thing. And we don't leave room for the Holy Spirit to breathe life. When you've got one, and we were talking about this during the break, when you've got one guy that's up on a pedestal and, you know, he's, he's the one that's kind of, you know, prepared the sermon, the 45-minute monologue, it really doesn't leave a lot of room for the Spirit to breathe life into it. Well, you were in some fierce competition, Brad. You're going to have to talk loud. All right, Brad. Fire it up. <laughs> You're saying on top of that. On top of that, Paul Paul's pretty clear in 1 Corinthians 2. That, that, that this idea of an objective... Uh, kind of exegesis where you just bring mathematical rules to the text does not work. It will not get you to the meaning of the text. It requires the presence of the Holy Spirit in community, uh, introducing uh, spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. And so, so it, it's odd to me that we try to sanitize uh, our our study of the Scripture to the point where we've we've stripped it down to formulas and. Uh, exegesis that involves sort of laying the Bible on, 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 uh, cushion, pinning it down, right, and dissecting right. it like a frog in a laboratory. And you, you just won't come to this stuff doing that. Like you have, you have to open your hearts as community, listen to the voice of the Spirit, and and He surprises us, or she surprises us, or God's Spirit surprises. Us. I'm just, I'm, I've never ever read this in any commentary, but I'm, I'm quite convinced that this yeah. is we're tracking with the spirit on this yeah yeah and you know we're all we all have gathered here uh didn't verbalize it but we all know where we're coming from we all are believers but two or more gather in the name of jesus there i am in the midst of you yeah. right we yeah. believe that yeah, yeah. so yeah. so how, how do we contextualize that particular uh piece of, of scripture we contextualize it by doing this yeah so it's 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 not when you're saying you're saying grace at the table, you know yeah. only, yeah. you know this this is the the proof in the pudding, mm. uh, I think uh, this is this is really what what we're talking about. You're, crea when, when, you're creating I, a space. Yes, that's right. For the He's teacher. here in the midst of us. We mm. believe that. It's good. Yeah. Very good. Well, yeah, and it, it's interesting to just begin to think about this parallel because then you have to start to ask, well. If this is really there, and we're not just seeing, uh, you know, messages in the headlines, then it, it, it's there by design. So, what does that mean then about the authorship of this? And yeah, to me, I, I want to now go dive in and look at all the problems that you rattle off there, Michael, and then look at the stories of Cain and Abel to look at, um, you know, the flood to look right. at. That's right, Babel look like Babel and go are there parallels then to each one of these bad events wow. you know and and then what is he what is the author what is Luke really up to is he already 
He's already trying to explain the fall of the church. Wow. In the history of how the church came to be, is that already what he, the story he's beginning to tell? Because you know we tend to think about this stuff as if somebody's there filming in real time, like a documentary. But no, he's reflecting back on yeah. past events yes. and trying to make sense of them for future or present readers. So yeah, it just it makes me go, oh, we just climbed another hill and saw another country down below that maybe we should take a look at. Wow! Yeah. Wow! Wow! We wouldn't be the first to see Babel reversed in the, you know, on the day of Pentecost, no, right? No, so it becomes right. part of that initial idyllic state of the church, right? Right, right, right. Well, now, I, I want to bring out another thing. You, uh, Michael, you mentioned a lot about the Satan. Yes. Can you, can you unpack that for us? And, you know, what are, when you say the Satan... What are you referring to? Can, can we back up one more sure. second, by the way? I sure. just want to jump on that Babel thing. Yeah. This is an inversion of it, though, because yeah. this one begins with Babel. The primeval, primeval history ends with it. Babel, in this one, the dispersing of the different languages, yeah, that's right. it's an inversion of Babel, in both in the order, in the sequence, because that caps off the primeval history of Genesis, but also in what happens with the language, that the language is used to scatter. In this sense, now... The same message is heard in multiple languages. And they're to scatter. Yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, wow. it's, it's, it's not so much being dispersed, but being sent. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. but it's, yeah, anyway. That is, sorry. And it's before the fall of the church. Right. Instead of the capstone. Sorry, uh, Michael. Yeah. So wow. what, what did you want me to address there, The brother? Satan. Um, unpack the idea of the Satan for us. When you say that, what do you mean? And, and I want to, you know, remind our audience that you're coming from a Girardian perspective here, I think. For the better part of um, post-exilic Judaism, clear up into the present, the Satan is perceived as a person, as a personal figure, um, an angel that God creates with a name, Lucifer, who in the Enoch literature uh, falls for, after a rebellion, incites a coup that essentially fails and uh, then becomes the figure who is going to decimate humanity. Man, this is tough competition with that act on stage, right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we've got a talent show. We've got a podcast. We've got it all, folks. So what I'm doing is I'm, I'm arguing that when Jesus says he sees Satan fall as lightning, he's rehearsing that Hanakic tradition of this fall of Satan. But what he's not doing is he's not arguing that there is, um, uh, how do I put this, a personal being that falls. What he's saying is that the satanic principle, which previously had been conceived as part of the Godhead, as one finds in the prologue of Job, has now become an anthropological principle. Satan, thus Satan, is now who we are as um, my medically conceived um, narcissistically turned inward and turned on each other creatures. So the Satan is the operative principle of deception and death rather than referring to Satan, capital S as a being we now recognize that the Satan is both the structural principle of sin and that way that structural principle works itself out sociologically. And how's that happening with Ananias and Sapphira in the story? When 
Well, can, can I just – let me just recapitulate real quick just to make sure everyone understands what you're saying. So, Because I want to make sure I understand what you're saying, first of all. Are you saying there's kind of an evolution of the idea of Satan so that oh, it goes yeah. from it goes from being God's henchman to being uh, well first of all from being part of God being to part, now God's got a henchman well part part of God then God's prosecuting attorney then a, a rebel a fallen rebel angel uh, to the accuser of the brethren which is a function that the Satan has in the Jewish tradition, the old, what we call the Old Testament. The father um, of lies. The father of lies is another one. But in, in Acts, when Peter says, well, um, what, I, oh, I don't have the text in front of me anymore, but why did Satan cause you to lie? Again, the, the satanic principle has is embedded within deception and the notion of of sacrificial practice of withholding one has to one has to have something in order to buy the gods off hmm. and if one believes that god is a withholding god it's important to keep something behind to make sure you can still get what you want or wow. need wow. in other words a the currency almost yes in other words yeah. the satan in the acts 5 text is now the principle but that that ananias and sapphira really believe in hmm. the, and the, furthermore it's that lie then that brings about the death. Just as in Genesis. the Genesis text, Satan was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. You have the lying in the garden mm -hmm. huh. about this withholding God. And then it brings about Cain killing Abel. Wow. So that's when sin has brought forth death. Wow. Yeah. So it's like a natural, it's almost a natural progression. A natural... Instead of supernatural progression, but, it's almost a natural. When, when when Jesus says, "I see Satan fall like lightning," what does he really mean? He means that Satan has been exposed. That the whole the whole violence mechanism has been exposed. Yeah, like light, you can see lightning from everywhere. That's right. It's very clear. And 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 the and so the, the failure of 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 Satan and Satan's way is now made clear. I see Satan fall like lightning. He's going to hit the ground. You know, he's going to, you know, that, that's it. That's, that's a, it. That's another piece, but yes. yes. There's this other thing, too. We're, we're, what I don't hear you saying is that this is the evolution of Satan. It's the evolution of our theology of Satan. Right, right. Absolutely. right? We're not oh, yeah, saying, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah Satan called. actually used to be part of God. Right. But now, no, this is a progressive understanding that's unfolding that in the New Testament. Yeah, there is, no, there is no concept of Satan prior to the exile because the Jews had not been exposed to Babylonian Zoroastrianism and dualism. So prior to the exile, there is no Satan as a, as a, um, as a figure. Yeah. It's What's only, happening in Job, or when do you feel that was written? Oh, I know. I, Job's piece of wisdom literature certainly written uh, would be for us quite late. I would say um, the dialogues are, are uh, which does not include the prologue where the Satan is mentioned. The dialogues, I think, could, could be even 6th, 7th, 8th century BCE. But the prologue is certainly added uh, 400, 500 BCE. Wow. I mean, the, the you know, the linguistic... The language is different. The Hebrew is different. The structure is yeah. different. It's definitely an addition. So my question, the question behind my question is, so so you're seeing even Satan as he appears in Job is part of that Zoroastrian tradition. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, and that and that's what what creates for us the capacity, if we're willing to pay attention to it, to really see what's going on in Job. It is not about this devil figure that's wreaking havoc. It's about the scapegoating of Job 
by the scapegoats of his community. Job is the scapegoat of the scapegoats. That's the problem Job had. There's, a, there's another thing going on with the Job story, though, and that is that this guy is basically the king. Yes. Uh, he has all the power. So the issue here is a power issue, too. Yeah, he's king one day, he's not the next. And, he's and how's he going to deal with it? How's he going to deal with not being king? Mm. We all thought that you know he had, he had everything, mm. and, and God was on his side. Now, the tables well, have been turned. Yeah, so. and, and, and Job's story is, in that sense, um, quite typical of the uh, ancient Near East and the ancient world in terms of the death of the harvest king each year. One, one sacrificed the king in order to get a good harvest. So, but what's interesting about Job is that it's the scapegoats who scapegoat Job. In other words, they're glad finally to have it. They're at the bottom, and they're glad that there's somebody beneath them. Right. That's what makes. But so, but the Satan again. Come back to the Satan in Acts and in the Ananias Sapphira story, is the Satan is a deceiver and brings death, just as Laurie pointed out. And so we again have another parallel here to that Genesis story, which certainly now begs a doctoral dissertation. So, so let me, uh, let me. Uh, you're gonna have to change that, aren't you? Yes, no. He's going away from Barton Gerard. To... No, he can do it. Kevin, you need to just lay down your career as a filmmaker. Yeah. It's your turn, seminary. Kevin. That's right. So, so let me, um, let me ask you, just as a, as a really simple-minded individual, and I don't know if this question's answerable or not, but what is the, what's the nuts and bolts? of how Ananias and Sapphira die. If there's not a figure, Satan, if there's not a figure, and it's not God doing it, what's the nuts and bolts of, of how they die? Well, I, I suspect somewhere somebody could do um, the psychology of being found out and what happens when you're being exposed. Of you and you're exposed. And, and wow. Theologically, sin kills you. That's sin, what kills yeah, you. Yeah, sin yeah. kills you. Sin kills you. Yeah. But I'm certain that at this point that's, that somebody could do a study of what happens when somebody is like, you know. I've been found out. I've been found yeah. out, yeah. So, But it is presented as a supernatural event. In it, or that's what the readers to infer, don't you? I don't know. I, I think that's what happens to those in the community. Yeah, they yeah. want to read it that way. But is is what their is their interpretation of it a viable interpretation? Well, and is even Luke's interpretation? That's what yeah, I'm and, saying. And, Luke well, is presenting it. Now. And in that passage, it doesn't say the fear of the Lord. It just says they were filled with fear. Oh, it doesn't say it's the fear of the Lord. Right. Sorry, I inserted that. This is how the Bible gets like. It just says up, great. It just says up. great fear came upon them all. So I, I did exactly what we're talking about. Yeah. I, it, I completely went from fear filled them all to, and I, I, I went fear of the Lord. Why would I do that? Why right. would I? Do that? I think they, it's just built in. You're a Bible translator. <laughs> I think that's such a natural thing, though. We've we've inherited this, oh, and yeah. it's so hard to get rid of our so paradigm. So Satan has just been exposed in me, right? Right. I mean, that's what we're, wow. in the in the sense of I'm. I, yeah. That's yeah, what so, this is about. So, wow. so great fear came <laughs> wow. upon the church, and upon all who heard these things. Uh, it does, great fear it doesn't say. And it says it the same the other time too. Just great fear. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. So great fear came upon. That's that's eleven going back earlier. Which would have been handy for the leadership, just like it is now. So great wow. fear that's came right. upon all those who heard these things. So in, in verse five of chapter uh, verse five of chapter five and verse eleven of chapter five of Acts, 
you have both the fear, but it's not the fear of the Lord. Just fear came upon. Wow. You, so, so it's really, it's really good that you picked up on that. Fear just came upon. It's not the fear of the Lord, because we read that in. I, yeah, I, I'm yes, convinced, yes. Brad, that, that that's the way we read this text, yes. and not the way it ha, it is truly presented. Yeah. So it's not the plain reading of the text that God killed. It's not that at all. That's not even at face value what it says. It, we've inserted and infused uh, the toxins of our own old, old theology. There's one thing that, though, Peter seems to know that Sapphira is going to die. So how? He knows that they're going to carry her out. So again, this would be another clue in the story that would make us think that he's been given an insight by God into something that's going to happen so that again just to maybe be devil's advocate but to but to say this is this would be why this would be why the reading would but this works with the orthodox (laughs) the orthodox theology of sin it's that it's not like if you go over 55 miles an hour around the corner the police will kill you it's if you go 55 (laughs) miles around breaking the law will kill you wow it's like gravity it's just gravity right and so so then so then we make this even the law is a description of, of how how things work and what's going to happen. And so P, Peter could be doing a descriptive thing here. He's uh, he's making a prophetic announcement that this is about this is what is they, about. But to they happen. literally die though, yeah, which yeah. which raises to me yeah. the question: Is we always think of Acts as descriptive? Mm-hmm. Is it prescriptive? Well, in, in terms of it's it's meant to be taken in a way that's not as a just straight history. When some have implied that Peter was exercising his authority, whether you know, well, and but I, I think that takes us further away from the but, insights we're getting. Well, and again with with Sapphira, she has no idea her husband's dead. Mm-hmm. So, and he announces to her, "Hey, the feet of those who buried your husband are going to bury you." Man, the shock what? of that news, bang! I mean, again, it's nothing Flat, in here the shock about of the news God. plus what. The same thing with Ananias. Oh my yeah. gosh, I've been found out. Maybe, maybe they're just... both 99 years old. Yeah, with a heart condition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, well, now, no, Ray, tell us how this differs from what you learned about uh, oh, how to do scripture. Please, please give us a little insight on what how you would have interpreted this or what you would have been told. Uh, in, in, well, in what's Bible so funny Bible. is what, what Kevin just said about about it being maybe it's prescriptive instead of descriptive. I've actually started coming to almost the opposite conclusion in some ways simply because I was taught the Acts was completely prescriptive so that everything the early church did, we were to imitate. So if I'll, I'll give you an example where this kind of deconstructed for me is, um, you know, in the calling of the deacons. It's basically, you know, the hierarchy says we're too good to do the crap work. So we're going to go pray and we're going to go, you know, study scripture and you guys go serve the widows and the orphans and that kind of thing. And then I think the Bible deconstructs that in the next chapter by having Stephen being the one performing the miracles and preaching the gospel. And then he's the first martyr. So I think it's like a, for me, that was one of the times when I went, oh my gosh, this isn't prescriptive because it's actually the very next chapter deconstructs the hierarchy they were creating. But yet what you're saying on another level I see completely what you're saying because it's almost like it's both. In the same way, Genesis, the fall of Genesis is prescriptive. Exactly. But it's not prescriptive in you're supposed to imitate these actions. No, it's but turn it's, from God and die. Exactly. Basically. Exactly. Yeah. It's more like a um, like an archetype, an archetype, or how yeah. do you say that? It's yeah. like it's like a, um, a metaphor 
the prescriptive part is the metaphor, not the literal actions. Right, right. You know? Yeah. Whereas I was taught the literal actions were the prescriptive part. Um, in a very literal sense, so that whatever happened in Acts, whatever Paul did, whatever Peter did, you know, you were supposed to do those exact things. Let's make our so church did, a one So the people in your church give all they owned to the church? No, they and, didn't. And no, they didn't. They just felt Why? guilty about it. And they didn't drop dead either. <laughs> <laughs> and they were never taught to. You know. What, drop dead? <laughs> do you have that a, too. Do you have a sense of where, where the listeners were coming from who wanted you to ask the question? Well, uh, in, in the middle of doing the podcast, of course, we've been on... In the last couple of years, we've been doing a lot off and on on, on the topic of nonviolence. And so... A lot of our listeners, of course, because it is a paradigm shift, are, ha- are really struggling with that. You know, what about this passage? What about that passage? And many of them, I think, um, I, hope I'm, I hope I'm representing them correctly, but I think many of them are coming from the same background that I came from in a very conservative, evangelical, literal reading of the text. Um, so that, and, and a flat reading of the text. You know, what you talk about, Michael, in, in some of your material about how we read the Bible flatly so that those passages of Canaanite genocide in the book of Joshua are just as applicable as the Sermon on the Mount, and therefore you've got this Janus-faced God that can be both, you know, the killer and the giver of life. So I think, I think the reason that they're asking this question and have asked a lot of these kinds of questions is we're trying to find out, because this nonviolence thing, this idea that God is completely not violent, is a novelty to a lot of people. It's a really new idea, and and it totally goes cr- cuts cross grain against what we've been taught. Yeah. And so we're trying to find every, we're trying to uncover every rock and make sure. For, I think for a lot of our listeners, they're trying to make sure that we're on the right path. Well, but you know, we, we want we want to have uh, a God that uh, that is violent because we want our enemies destroyed. Right. We don't. It's it's hard work to love your enemies. We don't want to love our enemies. We don't want to forgive the people who have persecuted us. Uh, it is just very, very difficult work, and we are not generally willing to put the time and energy and effort in to do that. To our own dissembling, of course, but we would rather have people that we hate and rather have our enemies destroyed. And, and, and that is a primordial problem. And it, and it, it just is, is fast-forwarded to our age, only everything has gotten ratcheted up. Mm. Now we have nukes instead of spears. Exactly. Yeah. One of the important things to remember is that in... Um, we talk about this flat Bible problem. When you look at literature of Judaism and Christianity, is it emer- after the destruction of Jerusalem and Judaism has to reconstitute itself, the primary book of Judaism is Mishnah. And Mishnah is compiled about 200 um, CE by uh, Patriarch Judah. Now, in Mishnah, what you have is a compilation of all this rabbinical tradition. But one of the things that occurs in Mishnah is that the the rabbinic literature records the different opinions of the rabbis on topics. Rabbi A says this, but Rabbi B says this. Rabbi A says this because of this text. Rabbi B says this because of this text. And then often what you have is, and Rabbi C says A and B are both right because of this text. Or A and B are both wrong because of this text. In other words, all I'm saying is, is that Judaism records 
the difference. Mm. This this um, th- that it's not um, all God said it. I believe it. That settles it. Mm. Like you tend to find in Christianity. Yeah. Now I'm not saying that this has already happened in Christianity in the second century, but there's already a move to distinguish heresy from orthodoxy, mm. which you do not find in Judaism. Wow. So. When we come to the book of Acts, I think one thing we want to do is remember, A, every book in the New Testament is written by by Jews. Luke may be the exception, but we can't prove it because we have no idea who the author is. He's absolutely familiar with the Septuagint, could be Jewish. We don't know. Who knows? The point is, is that Acts needs to be read from a Jewish perspective. It's going to contain both, you know, um, this position, position A, and this position, position B. It's going to contain both texts that elevate um, or expose the relationship between God and sacred violence, but it may also contain texts that merge the two, like we would find, for example, in the Gospel of Matthew or the book of, of John the Revelator. So that's why I think it's important to learn how to think and read the New Testament like a Jew and not like a Christian. Wow. So, so basically it's this whole thing of the conversation is as much like whereas we just passed down the scripture the Jews passed on like with the Talmud and stuff the scripture and the conversation the ongoing. That they passed on the conversation yeah. and that is hugely essential. Yeah. I mean it's one of the miracles of the internet. Well, this no. is what, basically what we're doing now. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, that we, we are doing, we are reenacting what they did right. without the technology. But this is what we're doing. We're taking a look at the text, pulling it out, having conversation about it. Well, I don't believe with that. Well, I think that you should. Well, we could take a look at it from this. And so that well, we're basically doing that. See, and the other thing is that we're not trying to say, what does the text mean as though it had a meaning? What we're doing is we're saying, how does the text mean? And that's substantively different than saying, what does it Unpack mean? Unpack that a little bit. Well, we're, we're asking a how question. A how question is a question of, uh, for instance, um, how did things come to be? How, how, how did we get here? We're looking for um, chains and patterns, but we're not looking for a single meaning in the text, as though the text held this one secret meaning that we've got to find. So we're looking for patterns, and this is one of the things is we started throwing out ideas earlier, and all of a sudden Kevin goes, well, reminds me of Genesis, and then all of a sudden Lori goes, yeah, there's another parallel, and then we started throwing, we are, as Brad said during the break, we're a Jewish minion, we're a synagogue, we are working text. We're not trying to come up with the answer, but we are looking for the way the text informs us and changes the way we read it at the same time because we're learning to read it through each other's eyes. Mm. Give something up. Mm. So how how does it inform us? How what do we? Because what um when I was younger, uh, we would periodically have people come to town. Especially it would be itinerants, and they would use uh, this story, and then they would throw in some examples from their own ministry. And, um, you know... Of God killing people? Yeah. yeah, Wow. Well, here's here's one specific one. Uh, And this is a dear friend of mine who I I love, but he he was putting together a conference. It was to be an inter-ministry conference. The biggest ministry didn't show up. 
and this was going to create some they didn't have consensus about the joined co-laboring project they wanted to do so the head of the ministry that didn't show up had a car accident and quote oh, god took him out wow so that he was replaced by someone who would bring their contingent wow. to the conference so, so there it is so god took him out wow. and so I'm saying, if that's not how we're to read this text, that's is there right. a message for us that we can, so we can say, well, nice story, it's all done, but no, based in this parallel to the, the thing we've seen between, you know, with Genesis and all that, I'm wondering, how would we preach this in terms of application and practice? Okay, okay. I'm going to go back to the very beginning of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, and I hate to be harping on this and everything I'm saying, but it just happens to be because I'm writing about it in this book. In Acts 1, the disciples ask the question of Second Temple Jewish eschatology. Are you going to restore the kingdom into Israel now? Which means holy war. Right. It's not, you know, it's not about Jesus going around and, and everybody's nice because Jesus is here. This is, about, this is about eschatological wrath and doom and gloom and cats and dogs sleeping together, you know, and yeah, this is what it's about. And and this is their mindset. They're locked into it. And so I think one of the things that, that will uh, that really does not occur until Paul figures it out is that God is not like that. Peter and James still buy into this notion, and that's evidenced, I think, especially uh, in the Antioch incident as well as Matthew's Gospel. And so Luke is, is recording for us the history of this this um, community, and it's all in Jerusalem still. And they've still got the second temple eschatological wrath. When are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel and get rid of our enemies? And, and they're still thinking this way. So it may well be that they saw the deaths of Ananias and Sapphira as an act of a wrathful God. Uh. It may well be that that's how they saw it. But the fact that Luke records the text the way that it's recorded with no mention or connection between God and violence may be the deconstructive principle that we're looking wow. for. Wow. 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 That's good. Wow. Good stuff, guys. All right. Amazing. Thank you, everyone. I appreciate everybody's input. Um, once again, Brad Jerzak, Lori Harden, Michael Harden, Steve Berry, Kevin Miller. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you. Pleasure. Man, oh man, oh man. I hope you enjoyed that half as much as I enjoyed being a part of it. Wow. I'm never going to look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira the same way again. I mean, just the idea that this could have parallels hearkening back to the creation story, to the Genesis story and primordial history. Uh, that was an amazing insight that really, I think, can unlock a lot of the hard things we see in Acts and help us understand that not necessarily, you know, as we kind of move away from this um, hyper-conservative, hyper-literalistic interpretation of the Bible, as we move away from that and we begin to open ourselves up to new ways of thinking man, it really can open our minds to a whole new world of interpretation and understanding when it comes to the Bible. So I really hope you guys enjoyed this. I'm really looking forward to your interaction on the website or on the Facebook page. I hope you'll do that. 
But before you do, I want you to visit each of the websites if you get a chance for each of the people involved. Um, Kevin Miller, as you know, has a great movie coming out. I was actually able to watch the very first screening of Hellbound at the Wild Goose Festival at 11 o'clock at night. And it was incredible. This movie is going to be amazing. Well, it is amazing, but I think it's going to have an amazing impact on how people view the subject of hell and even more so how people view the character of God. So you have got to go check out hellboundthemovie.com. This is the website of Kevin Miller and his Hellbound movie. Um, I'm sure it's going to be coming somewhere in your area. I know it'll release in theaters and select theaters in September and kind of go from there. I think he's going to do a college tour and some different things. So you need to go to hellboundthemovie.com and demand the movie. You'll see a little link to demand the movie. Ask for it to come to your area. Incredible stuff. Um, Of course, Brad Jerzak, you guys all know Brad. He is a frequent guest on the program. Incredible guy. I just got to love Brad all the more while I was there. And Kevin, we we got to hang out together and, and camp together and Man, I just love you guys. Uh, Just really appreciate not only their insights, not only what they're doing for the kingdom, but their friendship. Great men of God and great men, period. Um, So check out bradjerzak.com. Check out his books. Check out his blogs. Great stuff. Brad, you are the man, and I always appreciate your insights, and I always appreciate your heart in all of these conversations. Um, Steve Barry you're not familiar with Steve Barry, probably, but Steve Barry, I met him while I was at the Wild Goose. Michael introduced me to him. Incredible guy. Um, Steve is just just so fun. I never realized when I first sat down with him and talked to him, I never realized as the, as the couple of days unfolded, what a quirky, funny, zany guy he is. I mean, if you hear any of the funny stuff in this conversation, chances are it was Steve Barry putting it out there. So, I, I mean, as I listened to this conversation a few times in the editing process, I just laughed out loud multiple times and would rewind and listen again to some of the stuff Steve said because he just made me laugh so much. Steve doesn't have a website that's live right now, although I think that might be in works in the future. But Steve is actually, he's done a, I think it's a 12-hour interview with Rene Girard who, of course, is the father of mimetic theory. Um, Just incredible stuff. If you guys get a chance, go to YouTube, check out a few videos that he's done um, as part of this conversation, and um, just drop him a line on those comments and tell him how much you appreciate him. Great guy. And last but definitely not least, Lori and Michael Harden. I tell you, I love these guys already. I had not met Lori, but, of course, I talked to Michael several times. Loved Michael already. I love him all the more after the Wild Goose Festival. I I don't just consider Michael and Lori any longer um, just uh, insightful, scholarly, um, theological, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, Theologian. Uh, I I don't know. My tongue's getting twisted right now, so you'll have to forgive me. But I tell you, I consider Michael and Lori true friends, great, great people. I was just so... um, just so amazed at their hospitality. They let Kevin and the Hellbound booth and me with the Beyond, the Beyond the Box booth join them in their booth free of charge. And they let us hang out, talk, interact. Um, we're just servants. Anything we needed, they were Johnny on the spot to give it to us. And I tell you, more than anything, they were just such great friends. Had incredible conversations for three days with these guys. And Michael and Lori, if you're listening, I love you guys. I just can't thank you enough 
for the influence you've had on me um, prior to and especially during the Wild Goose and just look forward to a long-lasting relationship with you guys. Look forward to doing much more together in the future. Um, so you need to go to Preaching Peace's website, preachingpeace.org. This is the ministry of Michael and Lori Harden. You're going to find some great articles there. You're going to find some great resources. And of course, Michael's new book, The Jesus Driven Life. Um, if you get a chance to check it out, great book. Steve and I are actually working on the audio version of that book for Michael and Lori. Hopefully that will be released in the next few months. Hopefully you'll see that coming out um, as we as we work and work and edit on that. So anyway, Michael, Lori, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate all your hospitality and your friendship. So anyway, guys, I appreciate your friendship too. So many of you have just become such a part of a rich community that we have going on at Beyond the Box. And I just want to thank you on behalf of me, on behalf of Steve. Um, we just love you guys. We really appreciate the input, the, the pushback, the conversations that we've had. You guys have spurred us on to growth. And I tell you, I'm, I, I just really can't thank you enough for the Beyond the Box community. I'm kind of tearing up as I'm talking about it, which I don't do that much. But anyway, <laughs> thank you so much. If you want to interact with this podcast, make sure to go to beyondtheboxpodcast.com where you can leave your comments on this podcast or any other podcast you see. You can leave um, your ideas for future episodes on our idea submission page there. Or you can go to facebook.com slash beyondthebox. That's our Facebook community. Incredible community of people who are like-minded, who are having a lot of the same questions and intuitions that we're having. Um, we don't always agree on everything, and I love that because that's what the body looks like. So come on over to there, hit the like button. You don't have to hit the like button if you don't want to. You can just comment. That way it doesn't show up in your stream in case you want to you don't want to be associated with a few heretics, which I totally understand. <laughs> um, but we welcome your input there, your questions, your comments, your your ideas. You can throw up any stream, any thread that you want to in the comment stream. If you want to start a new thread, feel free to do that. You can follow our Twitter feed at twitter.com slash btbpodcast, and you'll be quickly notified when all of our new podcasts are released. And last but not least, I'd love you to call into our phone number. That number is 626-246-6269. That's 626-24-NO-BOX. You can leave your comments there. You can leave your ideas there. Um, or if you'd like to, we'd love to hear you say, Hi, you're listening to Beyond the Box, and my name is... Or, my name is... Fill in the blank. And you're listening to Beyond the Box. We'd love you to do that because we love including you guys in the episodes. Just got a great community going here and want to make you guys as much a part of it as we can. And last, before I get out of here, I just want to thank the people that stopped by our booth and said, hey, I listen to Beyond the Box, love what you guys are doing. There were several of you at the Wild Goose Festival who encouraged me, and I just thank you for that. Just thank you for listening. Thank you for taking the time to interact, and thank you for taking the time to say thanks. A lot of you guys have done that lately, and I just really appreciate that. I'm just so humbled by that. So humbled that you guys are enjoying this program, that you're enjoying the community. I, I just, just really humbled by it. Thank you so much, guys. And on behalf of Steve, I know me and Steve talk all the time about how thankful we are for you guys out there. Not just the fact that you listen to us uh, rattle on, but the fact that you interact with us and you challenge us and, and that we can have community with you guys. So thank you so much. 
Um, hope you guys will tune in next time for another episode of Beyond the Box. We've got some great interviews coming from the Wild Goose Festival, some great other interviews in the works. And of course, every now and then, of course, me and Steve are always going to keep throwing our conversations in because I tell you, there is nothing like sitting on the phone or on the internet or in person at a coffee shop or a, or a burger shack or whatever with Steve Sentinel. Um Steve, you're my buddy. You're my pal. You're my best friend. And just I just can't tell you how thankful I am to have you in my life. Love you, man. And before I tear up again, I'm going to get out of here. God bless you guys. Have a great week, and thanks for listening.